So we need to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Second point that Paul makes here in support of marriage, in support of backing it off. Marriage can negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and to the Lord's work. And this is what we see in 28b through 35. I would also say now quickly, just kind of preface or couch that with, that marriage can also positively impact in many ways. But I won't be talking about those today because that's not what Paul is focused on. Marriage can negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work, 28b through 35. This is Paul's argument here to the betrothed, to the singles, and even to the marrieds. And what he does is he describes how this happens. Like when a couple gets married, there are things that happen in the context of marriage that cause, that negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work. There's things that just happen even organically and very naturally in the context of marriage. Things that, that we must guard against. Things that we're going to find out today that we're already guilty of. But he gives, I think, five, there's five subpoints here that he makes. And the first one is A, by distracting the Christian with difficulties. Marriage brings difficulties that singleness does not bring. We see this in 28B. What does he say? Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you of that. <laughs> I mean, you can just drop the mic and walk out of the room. Singles do not understand this because they're not married. Maybe they've never, if they've never been married, they're not going to comprehend, they're not going to understand this. But if you're married, your mind is already saying, well, yeah, I can, well, mm-hmm, uh-huh, yeah, that issue with Fred. I mean, you know. And this is his point. Christians encounter worldly troubles, is what he's saying, that can distract them from maintaining devotion to the Lord. And now this happens to singles and it happens to marrieds. But more so with marrieds. Marrieds are going to encounter more distractions because there's more than one person involved. And this Greek word here for troubles is really interesting. It's thelipsis. And it means to be pressed together. Pressed together. It means to be pressed together and under pressure or just under pressure. What marriage does is it presses two people together in the closest possible ways. While living in, in such close proximity to one another, the, the problems of human nature, just as a baseline thing, they're multiplied. You've got two corrupted, maybe redeemed, but corrupted human natures now working together in their corruption. So you've got marriage pressing two people together, and one of the worldly troubles is, is the kind of corruptions and things that happen because of our nature. Yeah, the single has to deal with that. But the single doesn't have to deal with that from his wife or from her husband. This is what Paul's pointing at here. Some of you, you know, oh, let's get married, it's going to be great, and all of a sudden it's like, man, I never realized how sinful Mike is. I just couldn't see it when we lived across town and spent a little bit of time together. But now that I sleep next to him, he's horrible. 
You do not know these things until you tie the knot and, and get with your spouse. You don't really realize these things. You see hints of it, but you say, oh, I'll just give him grace. After 10 years, I'm not giving him grace. I'm giving him judgment. <laughs> I've got a rod of discipline for her. <laughs> Marriage presses two people together. The human natures are now multiplied, combined under one roof. The, the fleshly traits that are inherent in each person follow them right into the marriage and then combine to cultivate, to create a fleshly Godzilla. Before it was like bad, but now it's, oh. You know, instead of having like one selfish person, because we can all be selfish, instead of having one selfish person under the roof, now you got two. Instead of having one insensitive person under the roof, now you've got two. Instead of having one temperamental person under the roof, you got two. And if you have kids, you got three, and you got four, and you got five. Think about what Paul is saying here. Worldly troubles. Why are these worldly troubles? Because they do not exist in the coming kingdom. They pertain to this world. All trouble... All sinfulness, all depravity, all bad attitude is part of this world, not part of the world to come. You have two people under one roof, all of this nature and human nature and these things just multiply. There's going to be more worldly troubles in a house of more than one person. I mean, some of you know what this is like. Maybe you're single and you had a roommate and you're like, that was really horrible. You weren't even married to the person. That gal at the end of the hall from you paid you rent but hardly ever paid her rent. Uh, a family of five, just logically speaking, theoretically, but really logically, because Paul is using logic, and logic, logic is good as long as it affirms Scripture, but sometimes Scripture defies logic. But he's using logic here, and if you think about it logically, a family of five is going to encounter five times the worldly troubles of a single person. Right? More people equals more worldly troubles. That's a rule of thumb. And that, that's Paul's rule of thumb. And it is logical and real. The manifestation of these fleshly traits under the roof lead to strife and conflicts and many other distracting difficulties. Instead of maintaining devotion to the Lord and serving His cause like they ought to, the couple gets wrapped up in petty skirmishes, pastoral counseling, and a plethora of other things. This is what happens. You get married, this is what comes with it. Not always at, at this, this level of output, but there's, it's always there. It may not always result in petty skirmishes and counseling and things like that, but a lot of times it does. Now, single Christians, they've got their own distracting worldly troubles. Amen? They have them. But when they become joined together in betrothment, just engagement, and then follow through to matrimony, they, in, they take on an entirely new set of worldly troubles, those of their fiancé when they're betrothed and those of their spouse once they get married. Trouble multiplies doubles. And some people are such a mess, it quadruples with one person at the helm. Man, you're doing the pathetic work of four. We need to get some help. 
You know, if there's trauma and damage in their life, it all goes into the marriage. People are under this weird mist and fog that marriage fixes things. Well, I won't burn with passion once we get... You'll burn with passion in marriage. Well, I won't do this anymore once I get... You will do that in marriage. I won't be lonely anymore. You will be lonely as a married person at times. Marriage doesn't fix these things. Sometimes it increases them. And don't start saying to yourself, well, I've been looking to separate from Fred, so <laughs> shut up. Don't start thinking like that. You wait till the end, and then you can leave him. No, I'm just kidding. Tell me. Worldly troubles, they're going to double. And then he or she, this devout Christian who's serving the cause of Christ and loving the Lord and serving him as these worldly troubles double, that person's going to be doubly distracted further impacting their devotion to the Lord and his work. That's Paul's concern here. He is worried or concerned at least that, that more marriages in this already insanely dysfunctional Christians gone wild church, he's worried that more of that is going to produce more worldly troubles. Heaven forbid this church had enough. And then it's eventually going to impact the church to the point where it pulls it entirely off mission. And it was already close. The mission of this church was to fix all its trouble rather than to spread the gospel. And he's worried that, you know, you people want to rush in. You don't even see what's going on around you. Marriages here aren't even working. And more of you want to get married. This church isn't going to be missional. Barely is. And that's our entire existence. We're here to spread the cause of Christ. If we don't have that, we may as well just go off to glory. We're here for the gospel, together for the gospel. And if, we, if, we, if we're not focused on the gospel, we are not focused on why we are here. And marriage has the tremendous, almost supernatural, incredible ability to distract us from all of that because it brings in all this dynamic and difficulty and distraction. And I would say that it also can enhance as, as two people serve the Lord together. So, yes, it can work positively too. It's just not all negative. But Paul's concern here in this church, he didn't see any positivity coming from it. And after studying almost seven full chapters, we can understand why. Amen. Some churches are a bigger mess than others. They're all a mess, but some are a bigger mess than others. Now, also logically, more marriages in this church might have, could have, may have helped those who burn with passion by providing them with a biblical context for sex. I mean, Paul did talk about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, right? Those who burn with passion should get married. So marriages could have helped in that area, maybe to alleviate and remove some of that sexual sin, but they also would have brought in a whole lot of other things. More marriages still would have increased at this juncture, still would have increased this church's problems. More marriages equals more worldly problems which lead to more, what, distractions. J. Mack wrote, marriage involves conflicts and demands, hardships, sacrifices, and adjustments that, that singleness does not. 
Marriage is ordained of God. It's good. It's holy and fulfilling. But it does not solve all problems. It brings more. That's right from the lips of MacArthur. And he's right. And that's what Paul is saying. And this is why Paul says rather emphatically in 28b, I would spare you of that. In other words, you're wanting to get married to fix these issues in the church. I would spare you of that because I would spare you of all the extra additional worldly troubles that are going to come through marriage. I would just spare you of that. Just, just hold the line. Hold off a little longer. Take a look at the guy in Sacramento. Maybe that'll deter you. I mean, Rome, sorry. This is why he says, I would spare you of that. So, first point, how can marriage negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work? By distracting him with difficulties. It'll bring in all sorts of distracting difficulties that that man or woman who passionately and devotedly love the Lord and serve the Lord doesn't do that anymore like they did because they're busy with all these distractions. They're busy with all these worldly troubles. That's what happens. Next sub-point, so he gets distracted, and then B, by diminishing his sense of urgency, verse 29, Paul puts it like this, this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What an interesting statement. It's really, I think, just the kind of the confusing way the English lays out the Greek. Bottom line, Christians are to be missionally minded. They're to be focused on making disciples of Jesus Christ. Mark 16, 15. Matt, Matthew 28, 19, right? All authority has been given to me. Go out into the world. And, and, and they should have, because of this, because of their, their mission, they should have a sense of urgency as they go about their daily lives because as Paul just said and it's listed in other places in scripture the appointed time has grown very short he's saying that things are winding down Jesus is coming back there should be a, a sense of urgency because of that and because of the present distresses and all these things there should be a sense of urgency in us Christians to get the gospel out there that's what he's saying every Believer is, is a sheep sent among the wolves to bear witness for Jesus Christ. Not just the 70. Matthew 10, 16 to 18. Or just the disciples who were sent out two by two. We are all sheep sent among the wolves. Every believer is a ministering priest. And I'll add for the ladies, priestess, because I know that's what the meaning is. We're all, as believers, ministering priests or priestesses. Isaiah 61, 6, Exodus 19, 6, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 6. What do we do as priests and priestesses? We serve the Lord and make his salvation and glory known. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 25. But you see what happens is when a single Christian gets married, their priorities shift big time. Their focus goes from the Savior to the spouse, from the mission to the marriage, from the church 
to children later on and so on and so forth. This is what happens. And the sense of urgency that he or she once strongly felt for the, for the kingdom of God, for the, for the work of God, for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it gets diminished. And sometimes it is just entirely replaced with a sense of urgency for the marriage, for the household, for the future, and so on. But as J-Max says again, marriage is no excuse for slacking the Lord's work. Mm. You know, there is no provision or escape clause in Scripture that nullifies the Great Commission. Only death, only when that serving saint passes away, goes to be in the glorious presence of Jesus. That's the only escape clause. That's, that's the only provision. Other than that, it's our job. That is the only thing that should ever separate us from the Lord's work is death. And that's not even death for us, it's sleep. You know, years ago, this is just... Help me, Lord, to be kind and loving and, and not too sarcastic. But years ago, I, I don't know if I read it or saw it in a sermon. I don't know where I saw it. I just know I saw it, and I know I read it or at least watched it. And there was a pastor who was giving advice and counsel to newlyweds. And he said, it is a very, very good, you know, they're, they're serving in the church and now they've gotten married. And his counsel was, you need to take a year off from serving the Lord and work on your marriage. As if marriage were more important than the Lord's work. It isn't. That's the assumption he makes when he gives that kind of counsel, that your marriage is more important than the mission. I'd like to see the chapter and verse that supports that. Anyone, anything come to mind? I haven't found chapter and verse yet that supports that theology. There's nothing there that supports his idea. We are undoubtedly commanded to hold marriage in honor. Hebrews 13, 4. No doubt about it. We're to honor marriage above any pagan or anyone else out there that doesn't honor it at all. It's just something they do. We're to honor it. We're to honor God in our marriages. But we should never, you know, hold marriage in, in, at, at a level of honor that goes above the Lord or his work ever. If marriage were to be held at that level, the same level of devotion and commitment and, and, and juice and energy and even understanding, if we were to understand marriage in a context of we put it right there with the Lord and his work, then we have to ask the question, why does it not last and transition over into the world to come, into the kingdom? Because it doesn't. If it's so important... Why doesn't it make it into the kingdom of Christ? Why doesn't it continue on after death? If it was that important. 
Not trying to say it's not important. I'm trying to say that our view is skewed and we have put it way up there. We have even used our marriages to justify our inactivity and devotion to the Lord. Do you think that God joined us together so that we could forsake him? No. No way. No way. Look, if, if marriage, were, it, it is to be held in honor. I understand that. I don't want to degrade that. I don't want to take away from that. But it does not rise to or above the Lord in his work. Never. Nothing ever should. And if it were at that level, you'd have to say to yourself, well, why doesn't it carry over into heaven or the kingdom of Christ? It doesn't. This is why Paul permits remarriage after the death of a spouse down in verse 39. Why? Because the first marriage is over at death. It doesn't even transition up. We're not still married as our spouse who loved the Lord dies and goes to be with the Lord. Praise God for that. It's sad for us. Praise God for that. But they're not our spouse any longer. Now, now a person can... I suppose, honor that commitment. And, and, and Paul says it's perfectly fine for that person to even suggest down in the same area, down at the bottom of chapter 7, that that person doesn't have to remarry. They can still think in terms of, that, ah, just that was my husband, and my husband is my husband, and I don't need to. Fine. But the marriage doesn't transition over into heaven. If it did, oh my goodness, think of the implications. If, if, if we're married, as they say from almost every pulpit when people are getting married, you're going to be married to Bill, for Fred, sorry, Bill, forever and ever and ever. No, you're not. But if that were true and your spouse dies and you remarry, now you're an adulterer or an adulteress, aren't you? Because your marriage is still binding while your spouse is up there with Jesus. Think of this stuff just... just we need to think through what Scripture says because we don't have scriptural ideas about these things. Point is, marriage is only binding until death. That's where it ends for married couples, which is precisely why Paul says it's okay for that person to remarry in the end of this chapter. Or to stay single if they want to do that. That's even better. It just doesn't carry over, nor will it carry over into the kingdom of Christ. Why? Because marriage is part of this world and it will perish with this world. 1 John 2.17 It will cease with every other unnecessary thing at the second advent, more particularly at the resurrection. When Jesus comes back, Matthew 22, 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. What are angels in heaven? Not married. Single, serving the Lord. That's what we'll be like. The resurrection is literally the end of all things we know and understand in the world. The things of this world will pass away and marriage and sex and these other things are part of that. Paul was concerned that if more singles in the Corinthian church got married, that sense of urgency for the gospel that had, you know, characterized them, it would just be diminished and they would become ministerially useless. Like some of the married couples who were 
focused in this church and around the community there, just focused on building their best life now. Marriage brings in all of that change of focus. In the second half of verse 29, Paul exhorts the singles, betrothed and marrieds, to live like they didn't have spouses. He's not saying, hey, go out and run around the town, go down to the bar, go to Donaby's. He's not saying that. He's not telling them to degrade or dishonor God in their marriages. He is suggesting that the marrieds, he's not suggesting that the marrieds should get divorced or anything like that or act like they're single, but rather that they should seek ways to serve the Lord together and to, and to you know, focus on his cause as a couple. That's what you have to do if you get married. You have to fight. You have to fight to keep the Lord and his cause at the center of your life. Because the pull is to have the wife or the husband and the children and the household at the center of your life. And they're not to be at the center. Really what he's doing is he's just, he's just exhorting them to kind of, even for the marrieds in a sense, to even go back to the days of old when the, their sense of urgency was strong and they were actually engaged in making disciples before they got distracted and bogged down by all these worldly troubles that come from marriage. He wants them to do what? What Jesus told his disciples to do at the onset of his ministry. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we seek first, even above marriage. It doesn't get replaced by marriage. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. So how can marriage negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work? very easily by diminishing his sense of urgency. It just takes it away. The sense of urgency, it goes from God and the kingdom or the gospel to the spouse and the family and everything else. It's a sense of urgency replacement is what it is, not just a diminishment. And as you get a little bit older in your marriage, you become less diminished in your sense of urgency for the kingdom of God and more focused on that. But at first, it's all about home building and life building and spouse building. And you just, if you have any time left at all for the Lord, you give them a little bit. Is any of this making sense? Paul's not trying to tell, he's not telling you, all right, you know, uh, Keith, time to act like you're not married to Elsa. A lot of people take it that way. That's not what he means. Both of you live your lives as if you had an undiminished, undiminished focus on the kingdom of God. Do that together. Don't act like the rest of the world who's diminished in everything and only focused on themselves. That's what he's saying. Sorry to use you as an example, but you're so lovely. Next sub-point. C, by diverting his affections. Verse 30a. Maybe you can kind of see how I was getting, like, manhandled during the sermon prep because I'm an offender. By diverting his affections, 30a, he says, And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Christians 
are affectionate people. Amen? We're lovers. We love God. We love other believers. We love the brethren. We, we love unbelievers. That's more challenging, but we do it. We love our spouses. We love our children. We love our grandchildren. Some of us have been around long enough, a few years before Jesus came the first pass. We love our great-grandchildren. Bruce isn't even here for that joke. That's too bad. We love our relatives. We love our in-laws. We, we love everybody. We even love our governor. And we also have a tendency to cultivate affections for things that are neither worthy nor deserving of our affections. As big lovers, we tend to fall in love with everything. We even love things that God says we shouldn't love, like the world and everything in it. 1 John 2.15. You see, the focus in marriage is usually on building a life together, maybe building a family at some point, you know, uh, creating, generating a, a good legacy for our children and grandchildren and maybe a lasting legacy, right? This is the focus of marriage, especially in America. The tools that are used in this Grand operation are the things of the world. Secular education, careers, businesses, money, investments, stock portfolios, houses, rentals, cars, clothing, etc., etc., etc. Those are the, the tools that are used to, to build a life, to build a family, to build a household, to build a lasting legacy. Amen? Am I wrong? No, we're not wrong here. This is what we do. Christians utilize these tools just like non-Christians or unchristians, whatever you want to call it. We utilize the same tools as they do. Hopefully with a different focus, but we use the same tools. You can't have a, any kind of life in the world without using the tools of the world to have a life in the world. Logic. And because of this, because we use the same tools... We also run the risk of falling in love with them, with the tools. We can love our money. We can love our possessions. Those are tools. We can love those things. We can fall in love with those things. We can set them up as idols where they steal affection, possessions. If Friendship with the world brings enmity with God. What does a love affair bring? James 4, 4. Christians can, can grow dependent, just as unbelievers, they can grow dependent on the things of this world and forget how to rely on God. Ager understood this, these dangers. He prayed, Lord... Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. That's in your bulletin, Proverbs 38 and 9. That is a wonderful text and a wonderful prayer. Just give me enough to get by. 
so I don't forget you and don't deplete what I have to the point that I end up having to steal and dishonor you in that regard. What a wonderful piece of wisdom. What a prayer completely absent from today. So how can a Christian tell if he or she has developed affections for the things of this world? It's very simple. You can tell by how they or we respond when the things of this world go up or down. Your guy doesn't get into the office at the White House and you throw a fit. You're in love with the politics of this land. It's that simple. You're the, if the stock market crashes and you crash, do the math. That's what Paul means in verse 30a. Those, those who are, have, have shifted their affections off of the Lord and his work onto the things of this world, they will rejoice when the things of this world are up and they will mourn when they are down. And they should not be like that at all. They really shouldn't be paying close attention to what's going on. Not at that level. So ask yourself this by way of test. Do I rejoice over the things of this world? Do I mourn over the things of this world? If the things of this world have the power to elicit an emotional response from us, they have our affections. That's as simple as I can put it. Guilty. And this can happen to single Christians. Hmm? Amen? Amen? Single Christians are, are probably just as likely to strike up a love affair with the things of the world as unbelievers or as, as marrieds. Single Christians can fall in love with the things of this world while using them for leisure entertainment or for building a life. But I think the risk is much, much higher for marrieds since building a life, building a family, and building a legacy is their primary aim. Paul was concerned that the betrothed in the Corinthian church would just kind of dive right in with the rest of the married couples and kind of join the Corinthian rat race and, you know, start keeping up with the proverbial Joneses, competing, diverting their affections away from the Lord and his work and aiming them at the things of this world as they build their own little micro kingdoms. And yet the world and everything in it will perish with the age. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, 2 Peter 3, 10. It's all going up in flames. The tools, the things of this world, the tools we use to build a life, family, and legacy, they're transitory, they're temporal, just like marriage, just like sex, just like everything else that pertains to this world. They will be consumed because there is no need for worldly things like money in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ. None of what we have here will make it over because it's not needed. 
And, and some of us right there start thinking, well, I, I, I won't really know how to live without some of the things of the world because I've grown so accustomed to them and I'll admit I love them to a degree. At that point, you won't care because you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. You care now, but you won't then. But you shouldn't care now like you do. It's all going up in flames. That's why MacArthur always laughs and says, drive a big gas-guzzling SUV, chop down a tree, eat a huge steak, because it's all going up in flames. Just do it. Be mindful of your cholesterol, Pastor Phil. Yes, I know. Because it's, it's through the roof. It's like 460. I have a tri-tip for a heart. You see, the kingdom of God is not like what we see. It is not of this world, John 18, 36. It is not made by human hands, Hebrews eleven ten. God is its builder, Matthew 6, 10. It will replace this world and be received by the people of God with rejoicing, Hebrews 12, 28, Revelation 21, 1 and 2. But don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He is not saying, don't use the tools or the things of this world to build a life. He's not saying that. He understands the necessity of it. What he's saying is, don't aim your affections at them. Don't fall in love with them. Don't cling to them as if they're your hope and your security and your future. And certainly don't put all your time, talent, and treasure into those things because they're not making it over, man. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't love your life and work more than God in his work. As Paul put it, don't mourn with the world and don't rejoice with the world. We are to love our spouses and children. We are to provide for them. If anyone doesn't provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. First Tim 5, 8. It's okay. It's okay to appreciate what we have because every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights James 1:17 and we should be thankful every day but our deepest affections belong to the lord and his work no person place or thing should ever trump god and no work that we do should ever trump god's work Paul told the Philippians, I know the gals have been working through this stuff and I've been listening a little bit and, okay, it's time for me to teach a little bit even though I'm not in that Bible study. I'm trying to get into it here. I can, I'm a man. Maybe if I shape, nah, then I'm just fat. Paul tells the Philippians, to live is Christ. Philippians 121a. This means that our life is about him. He is our life, Colossians 3, 4. He is first, and his work is first, regardless of our marital status. And Paul also said, to die is gain, Philippians 1, b What do we gain in death? An eternal weight of glory that vastly outweighs every momentary affliction, 2 Corinthians 4.17. In fact, 
No eye or ear on this side of glory can even come close to comprehending how wonderful heaven will be for believers. The only people who know how great it is are those who are there. And Paul who went there and came back and he just wouldn't tell us. Gave us a few hints and said, I can't talk about this. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But I would say this, most importantly, why is there gain through death? Most importantly, because we gain Christ face to face. We don't see him through a dimly lit mirror anymore like through faith where we just believe and trust him. We, we do that, but we see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For how long? All eternity. John 5, 24. And I think one of the best parts is that in this mode, there is no diverting affection from our end because we have been made perfect. Revelation 21, 4. If that's what awaits us, we must have that, that as the focus of our life now. Our marriage with the Lamb comes first. We are to honor our bridegroom and his work first. He is our life. Your spouse, oh, he's my life. No, he isn't. Christ is your life. That guy's a blessing the Lord brought into your life, but he's not your life. Your life isn't even your life. It is Christ. Why else did Jesus say over and over, and I think in Luke 16, I know it's in Luke, to count the cost of discipleship because with him it's all or nothing and you get married and 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 these affections that that you had for the Lord and and on his work and and they were powerful and and potent and they were there and and now they're diminished and they're put on someone else and the the task another task a different task So how can marriage negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work? By diverting his affections. It's that simple. Next subpoint D, by devouring his resources. This is a big one. Verses 30B to 31. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. And look at this. For the present form of this world is passing away. Christians are entrusted with many gifts, many resources by God, both spiritual and physical. In fact, we are called stewards of God's varied grace. 1 Peter 4.10, you know, God dispenses his grace in a great number of ways, and, 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 and we're stewards of that, his varied grace. Since married Christians are focused on building a life, family, and legacy, they tend to invest all of their resources into those ends and leave very little, if anything, left for the Lord and His work. This happens. And I think probably some of you are going to probably kick against that, and that's okay. Just don't kick me. I think tithe theology is probably the main culprit behind this what I would call poisonous thinking because it has trained Christians to think that the Lord and his work are worth about 10% of their income. Eh. While the remaining 90% can be used for building your best life now. 
that's what happens. See, I don't think tithing is necessarily a bad thing. I would say it's an Old Covenant, Old Testament thing, but it has trained us that here's God's little portion and here's my big portion. Hmm. And this is actually assuming that, that Christians actually give 10%. The majority don't give anywhere near that, not even close. They give far less. We've talked about this from the pulpit, the 80-20 rule. It is real. 80% of church attending Christians don't give up their time, talent, and treasure, while 20% do. That's tragic. What it tells me is that the church is a lot smaller than I've ever pictured it to be because there's a lot of people in churches that don't do any of these things that come very naturally and organically for a Christian, and since they don't do them, that tells me they're probably not Christians. Oh, let's just go to Zacchaeus. The man is finally saved and pays back all of this, everything he's stolen fourfold. That's what Christians do. They realize what they've been given in Christ the precious, eternally valuable blood of Christ, all their sins washed away, and they just can't help themselves. They just want to give and give and give with a sense of urgency. And the majority of people who call themselves Christians in churches don't do anything like that, so do the math. But you know what? I'm, I'm very excited and encouraged at RHC because God has managed to flip those numbers. It's probably about 80 engaged, 20% not. And I know and I'm trusting that he will get us to 100% without me ever pushing this church to do that. Because the word of God is powerful and can get the people of God right where God wants them without me tugging on them. The spirit of God, I don't have any power. God has done this work through the proclamation of his word, not through Phil Baker or these elders. And he will continue to do it. But the facts remain the same. Paul is, is not saying it is, it is wrong to use our resources to, to build a life, family, and legacy. He is not saying that. He is saying that it is wrong to invest everything in them and neglect the Lord's work. That's what he's saying. He is saying it is wrong to let the things of this world devour all of our resource. If we're willing to give over all our resource to the things of this world and building a, a life and a, and a family and a marriage, it's pretty obvious where our affections are. Tells us what we treasure in our heart, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I can... I can go into a room in my house and look at a wall full of guns and I can see what I treasure. Where do we invest? He's not saying it's wrong to, to use these tools and resources. He's just saying it's wrong to, to let them devour everything. He is saying here in the text, in his own words, we should be like those who have no goods. You know, those who have no goods aren't worried about goods, logically. He's saying we should be like those who have no dealings with the world. If you don't have dealings with the world, you don't care about the things of the world. That's what he's saying. That's his logic. It's brilliant. He's saying this so we don't get wrapped up in these things and become wasteful stewards. He hangs a, a potent little reminder on the back end of 31. Like, you know, you're just, 
letting the things of this world devour all your resource in this big task of building life, family, and legacy. And he says right here is another reminder for the present form of this world is passing away. You're investing in the wrong stuff. What you're buying, what you're building is not going to last. There, you know what? There is no such thing in the long run of a lasting legacy. Not in temporal things because it's all going up. It's going to be gone. Your stock portfolio is going to be consumed. It's going to go away. And you nurture it like a child, a little child. This is what we do. This is what we all do. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people complaining because of the current administration or whatever about how their 401k is down and what they'll do and how they'll do it. And maybe God is trying to teach them that you're relying on this and investing in something that is not going to stand the test of time. Well, I got to figure out how to re recoup some of these losses. Why? It's all going up. For the present form of this world, that means what we know and what we see and what we utilize and what we spend on, it's all going away. And yet our resources have eternal value when we invest them in the church and kingdom of God. Those same tools and resources, when you put them into the things of God, they can have eternal value. Because now we're talking about souls. Now we're talking about sanctification. Now we're talking about building in an area that will stand forever and ever and ever. The gates of Hades shall never prevail against my church, whether believers give or not. Nothing is going to bring this thing down. But when you put into it, it has church value. It has eternal value. But when we put them in the world, they have only temporal value because this is all going to pass away. Our resources become flame retardant when we put them in the Lord's work, but they become, uh, they become propellant, literally propellant, accelerant when we put them in the things of this world. You put them in the things of Christ, they're fireproof. You put them in the things of this world, they're going up. So we should prioritize how we invest, where we put our resource. Amen? As, as literally divinely appointed stewards, that's what we are. We're appointed by the divine, by God, by the divine capital D. As divinely appointed stewards, we are to use what we have to make the most of every opportunity for Christ because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16 we are to lay up treasures in heaven by investing our resources in the Lord's work here on earth. That's how you create treasure in heaven where moths don't matter and thieves don't exist by putting it into the things of Christ. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. When we get wrapped up in this world and the things of this world and we let it just devour our resources. And then we've been taught since birth that, at, you know, give him back at least 10%, which has trained us to only value his work 
at that percentage or lower, and his work is worth more than anything else because it alone is eternal. It's worth everything we have, and some have given everything they had. Jesus, Paul, others, probably all of the apostles. And we're sitting back as fat cats under an American dream regime. We just don't get it here. We don't. So how can marriage negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work? And I say this happens more so in the context of marriage because you're building a life. You're building, you're building a marriage. You're building a relationship. You're building a family. You're building everything. Singles can do it too, but it really happens in marriage. But how can it negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord? By devouring his resources. Everything you get from the Lord goes right into building something that's not even going to be here. Wow. That's sobering. Final sub-point. E, by dividing his interests. This is the largest point and category, and it's the easiest to comprehend and understand without a lot of exposition. Verses 32 to 35, I'll read it quickly. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Stop there. Christians are to be preoccupied with the things of the Lord. Pre and occupied. They are to follow Jesus' example and be about their father's business at every age and stage. Luke 2, 49. Remember, he's like 12 years old. He departs from his family and ends up in the temple and he's in there teaching and making all the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the other C's marvel at his wisdom at 12. And parents come back and say, what did you do? Why did you run away? What are you doing? I have to be about my father's business in his house. That's what we're to be about. He was doing that at 12. I'm 53. I'm still not doing it. What is wrong? We should have a singular interest. Christ and his work. But this is nearly impossible in the land of American dreams and rampant consumerism. Marriage just makes all of it more difficult. It introduces the Christian to a whole new set of interests. Paul uses an unmarried man, married man, unmarried or betrothed woman and married woman to illustrate this point. The unmarried man has a singular interest. He is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Singular interest. The married man, however, has a divided interest because we know he's still anxious for the Lord in a sense. He hasn't walked away from the Lord, but he's also anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. The, the unmarried man is all about pleasing God, pleasing Christ. The married man becomes pretty much all about pleasing his wife. There's the exchange. That's what happens. And then the unmarried or betrothed woman has a singular interest. She is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to 
live a holy life in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. Her divided is interest. Her interest is divided. She's concerned about how to please her husband. Same thing. This is the effect marriage will have on Christians. It can divide their interests. It will divide their interests. It's not just a potential. It'll happen. They will desire to serve the Lord. But the needs of their spouses and, and children and families, they are going to end up coming first. Guaranteed. And they will direct their time, talent, and treasure to them first. Make sure that everyone in the household is taken care of first. This is what happens. You, you don't think so? Remember the guy who was going to follow Jesus literally showed up and, hey, I want to follow you. Jesus said, go for it. He said, but I got to go back and take care of some things at home before I do it. Never mind. This is what happens. The intent is there, but the execution isn't necessarily there because you're bogged down with the wife and family. I wouldn't say bogged down because that makes it sound really bad, but you're bogged down with the wife and family. That's where your interest goes. It has to in a way. It should never depart from the Lord, but, but it's going to go to the others who are in close proximity to you. It will. That guy who wanted to follow Jesus, then he'd go home and say farewell to his family, Luke 9, 61. I doubt he ever even came back and tried to find Jesus to follow him. He was more interested in his family affairs, and that's what happens in the context of marriage. It divides our interests. Now, the better thing to do would be to incorporate God's work into our households, obviously. Bring the gospel into everything. Man. Make disciples at home. But we mustn't forget to invest our time, town, and treasure in a local body. This is part of the, the go imperative of the Great Commission. We go to Jerusalem, our community, and work our way out from there. Luke 24, 47. Marriage is also going to introduce Christians to anxieties they didn't have when they were single. Look at the beginning of verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Look, providing for yourself, you know, even as a single person can be very challenging, an anxious endeavor because, you know, you, you got you to you have, have, what, 15, 1,600 bucks a month for a, a crappy apartment these days? And then food and everything else? It's tough. Tough as a single. Providing for yourself is challenging, but providing for yourself plus a spouse, plus a child, or plus children, it is more challenging. Singles experience anxieties, but marrieds experience more anxieties because they have more people to provide for, more to protect, more to disciple, more to teach, more to nurture, more to discipline, more to entertain when they hit about two. Amen? Now, most couples, I think, Christian couples that get married, yeah, they've got divided interests because they've got to be focused on each other, but I think they do a better job at it. It's when you start having children is when it really changes. When a child is born, the, oh man, do the anxieties go up. Oh my goodness, now you've got this little miniature you. 
or better, Rachel, because that's better. And now you've got to care for this one. You know, I don't want to embarrass my son, but I've got three of them, so I guess, like, let's see, which one should I do? <laughs> uh, I picked Colin, but I love him, but when he was a, a little, a, just a little scrub, he was like a super burrito with a lot of hair, dark hair. I was like, yeah, you look like me. And we, we, he was our firstborn, we put him to bed. And uh, you know you know how it is, man. I'd just get up in the middle of the night and, and just go stand over his crib and stare at him, right? To make sure he was still breathing. And when he would take a long breath, ah! <laughs> yeah! Rachel, come in here, I don't know what happened, you know? I, I'm so glad the Lord brought him into our life and the others. Ryan and Ian, I love them. But with them came a whole new set of anxieties and stresses. And as the world is literally imploding around us, it raises it up even higher. And then with all of this inflation and everything else, when, you're, when your child, some of you have younger kids and, you know, there's no thought of them getting a driver's license and, and driving around. But let me tell you, when that starts to happen, mama ain't getting no sleep. And to think when I was like 15, I had no license and I was driving to Santa Cruz. <laughs> and then doing acid. I mean, it's like, I mean, you get married and... And, and your focus and your interests shift. They, they do. They're going to. And then when you add children and, and these things, and then they, and they begin to shift even more, so much so that at times God becomes an afterthought. And, and his work becomes an impossibility, at least at a level that's outside of your house. You know, rather than being anxious about things of the Lord, how to please him, I became anxious about worldly things, how to, to please Rachel by being a good provider for, for her and our sons or just how to not tick her off. Because when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Whoever wrote that dumb country song was a genius. I'm still, by the way, I'm still, I'll just be transparent for a moment, I'm still anxious about these things. I'll share something with you. As a church planter, as a pastor, you know, numbers go up and down, people come and go. And when people come, you know, we rejoice and try to build with them and, and make disciples and do all the things that we're to do. And, and then when they go, one of the first things that comes to mind is one of these worldly anxieties and concerns. The giving is going to go down. Well, I have to go back to work. That's real. That's real. That happens. Is that a concern I should have? No. I should just trust the Lord. And people have come and gone, 
and he's always provided, and he has a perfect track record, but in those moments of weak flesh and anxiety, I forget all of that. And then it takes somebody like Rachel to come along and say, hey, dummy, when has he never come through? Uh, never. But it's real. And I know you feel the same way in your own life and work and whatever. Sometimes the anxiousness of just trying to make ends meet is, it, 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 just to make ends meet is just, it can be profound. And, and it, it, it can happen to singles, but it really happens to the marrieds because they have so much more at stake and so much more to take care of and so much more to watch over and so much more to spend on and everything. I mean, we have a $1,400, $1,500 a month grocery bill. It's more. <laughs> Today, it's more money for less food. That doesn't raise as much anxiousness with me as it does my lovely bride because she's the one that makes the menu and does all that planning. God bless her. And it, 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 there are times where she feels exactly what I'm talking about. Like, my goodness, it's going to cost so much more. And we've got these great white sharks for kids that just blah, blah, blah. They're like Pac-Man. They just eat everything. You bring stuff home. I have to hide food so I can eat. Where are the frozen pizzas? We didn't get any. You know you can't keep those in your cabinet. They're supposed to go in the freezer. They'll be all right. Who hides food? <laughs> exactly. All the, all the parents who have giant kids, when they're little, they're like, they're like little squirrels. Who cares how cute? Right? When they get big, you're like, stop eating. There's more people in here than you. One pork chop. Right? It's, it's silly, but I'm anxious for these things at times, even when people come and go. I, I know, and I shouldn't focus on the bottom line, but sometimes I have to because we have things to manage here as elders and we have bills to pay and a salary and stipends to pay and there's just a lot of stuff going on. And the Lord has never failed, but sadly in my own flesh that doesn't remove the anxiousness knowing that. It doesn't stop my interests from being divided. <clears throat> There's just no way around this. When you get married, your interests are going to be divided. That's just how it is. There's no way around it. So how can marriage negatively impact a Christian's devotion to the Lord and his work? By dividing his interests, by splitting his focus. I got to take care of my wife now. I got a wife to take care of. I got a baby to take care of. And Lord, I'll get to you at some point. This is what happens. Paul, just wrapping up, Paul did not want the betrothed believers in the Corinthian church to see his words here as a series of imperatives against marriage. That's not at all the intention. Marriage is good, it is. God ordained it for our good. Paul knew this. Remember what this is. It's not a series of imperatives. 
It is apostolic advice given why to benefit the betrothed, not restrain them from getting married. Verse 35a, these aren't restraints. There is no, in any way, support for harsh legalism here. If someone has told us it is sinful, you know, if we're a single person, they've told us it's, it's sinful for you to marry, they are wrong. And on the other hand, if someone has told us that if, if we have the slightest measure of burning passion, we should jump right in and get married, they are wrong. We should consider the times, count the cost of following Jesus and being married, and conduct, just bathe it in prayer before we do anything. Paul aimed his apostolic advice at the betrothed, but I think it hits all believers, singles and marrieds alike, square in the chest. Because we are all guilty of putting stock in this world, which has led to moments and even seasons of decreased devotion to the Lord and His work. This is certainly true of my own life. And if you're going to be honest, it's true of you. It's a sad reality. But I do see this text as a loving exhortation from our Heavenly Father given to do what? To promote good order and to secure our undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 35b. What does that mean? This is what it means, especially for us marrieds. God, through this text, through the Holy Spirit, is calling us back in this very moment to our first love, himself and his work even though we are married. May we receive this astonishing, hard-hitting text as such. Receive it as a gentle correction, as a loving admonition for us to, to work toward getting our interest and our resource and everything that we are back into, back onto God and back into His work because his work will last forever and ever and ever. And we can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. I have tried. I've been a Christian for 20 years and served the Lord for 20 years, been married for over 20 years and had divided interests for over 20 years. And I have tried and tried and tried to create and generate more of a singular interest. And I realize I really can't because I have a responsibility to my wife, but I must never, I've realized this this week, I must never exalt anything, including her, as much as I love her, above the Lord. And the work that I do at home and with her and, and, and providing for our family, that work is an important work. It's a beautiful work, but it must never exceed or supersede or rise above the work of God. The days are short. Let's put our hand to the plow and work for him. Together, as singles, as marrieds, as betrothed, just don't ask me to marry you. Amen?
I would do it. I'd marry you. Well, I can't marry you. I'm already married, but I would be the officiant. <laughs> but let's focus on what we've learned today. Receive it as a loving, gentle correction to guide you back to your first love. Amen? This is what was told to the Ephesians. They had lost this. And they were called back to their first love, Christ and his cause. Let's obey the same call back, okay? What's that going to look like in your life? That's between you and the Lord. And if you need some wisdom, I'll try to give you some. I'll probably just keep taking you back to this text. The elders are here to help. This whole church is here to help, here to pray, here to support, here to rally alongside of you. So let's do what the Lord calls us to do in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit and as a unified body that loves God more than anyone and exalts his work above all other work because it is the highest work we could ever do. We are invited into this thing, man. Wow, what a privilege. Let's not forsake it or take it for granted. Amen?